It's Thursday, December 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. At the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, canine studies are being done to see if man's best friend can sniff out coronavirus. So far, they're doing a pretty good job of it. Nine dogs are currently enrolled in the study with the hopes that one day they might be able to pick out infected individuals, including those that are asymptomatic, in nursing homes, businesses, and airports. Dogs have already been proven to be able to detect explosives and some diseases such as hidden cancers, diabetes, and bacterial and viral infections. Francis Stitt-Sellers, senior writer at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, the reopening of schools was a huge topic this past year, and it might not be the best course of action to treat schools like COVID hot zones. Thankfully, children are, by and large, spared most of the effects of the virus. They are only half as likely to get infected as adults, and while they can transmit the disease, they seldom cause outbreaks. In the meantime, as schools in other countries have already opened, we can look to them to see what has worked and what has not. Some of the most appropriate safety measures could include testing and contact tracing, improved ventilation in classes, and keeping students with a single group of peers throughout the day. David Zweig, contributor to Wired, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We actually don't know yet exactly what they're sniffing, and that's one of the mysteries hanging over this. And that's where the chemistry and physics will come in later in developing an electronic nose is narrowing down exactly which molecules people release. But we do know smells are chemicals, are molecules that are released from bodies and they change with sickness. Joining us now is Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Francis. I'm delighted to be with you. I always love a good dog story. So your article caught my eye. And right now there's a study going on that's uh, actually teaching dogs to see if they can detect the novel coronavirus. Obviously, we know that dogs have very enhanced olfactory senses. They can smell a lot of things already. We know uh, bomb sniffing dogs, they can smell explosives, they can already smell other diseases, things like cancers and and whatnot. So right now they're being trained. There's a a group of them being trained to sniff out the COVID-19. So, Francis, tell us a little bit about this. So this is a study being done by uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Working Dog Center. They're based in Philadelphia, and there are a couple of other very good studies being done around the world, one specifically at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. As you mentioned, dogs are very good at smelling. We know that. These dogs are being trained by the people who also work with special ops dogs, dogs that will do very high-level scent work with explosives and things. So we know that many diseases do create a smell. If you think about people who have diabetes, they're known to have a fruity smelling urine. When people get sick, their breath often changes, and these can be signs of illness. So the question these researchers want to know is, is there a distinct smell attached to this new disease, the coronavirus, that produces COVID-19 in humans and has been causing such disaster around the world? And that's the work they're doing, using the same sorts of equipment they would use to teach dogs to detect explosives. The way they do this is to take, in this case, a deactivated form of the virus. If they were doing an explosive, they would take the explosive and have the dog sniff it and reward them at the beginning for recognizing that smell. Then they put the smell on what's called a scent wheel, among many other tempting smells. And the dogs learn to recognize and get rewarded for recognizing the appropriate smell. After that, you can go out and test and see if the dog can recognize that smell among many, many other smells. And that's what I was witnessing in a place called Greencastle, Pennsylvania, at a dog training center a couple of months ago. 
there at the center, what they're actually using is urine from a person that is a coronavirus positive. And as you mentioned, they put it on this scent wheel. The dog goes around until he finds it. And they're finding out, I think this uh, program has been going on for like about 10 weeks or so now. And they're finding out that some of the dogs are actually really accurate in predicting this. And they're hoping that if they can uh, detect that scent and really hone in on that, they could even find people who might be asymptomatic and have COVID-19. That's absolutely true. So what I was saying was sort of early on in this research, and the dog's accuracy was stunning. They were testing for deactivated urine. This was urine that had come from positive patients at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital. And was once it was deactivated, was put into these cans that the dogs were circling and looking for. And they were very, very accurate. They can go from there to test other things like saliva, also sebum or sweat. So sebum is the, the sort of sticky substance that's exuded on people's backs and will show up on T-shirts. They're going to ask people to wear T-shirts, people who've recently been tested, and then to return them and see if the dogs can recognize the smell on people's T-shirts. If that's true, and that these early results look very promising, there is the possibility that dogs could one day be deployed in airports. Now, there actually is news of a test that's a little simpler than this. It's actually taking samples of T-shirts, and this happened after my article was published, but taking samples of T-shirts in Dubai airport, and dogs are being asked to look at those samples, and we haven't yet heard the results of those tests, whether they're accurate. But you can see there's a huge possibility here, also a huge possibility for using dogs in the first stage of developing electronic noses, which could be less invasive and can work 24-7 instead of the short day that a dog has to work. And these are kind of breathalyzer-type noses, the same things that are used in the perfuming industry. Now, I do want to get a little bit more into the artificial noses, but there are some doubts about using dogs in this sense to sniff out people with COVID-19. I guess some of the detractors say there's problems with scaling it up, things like that, but the accuracy could be there, but just to, the time that it takes to train the dogs might not be. The time yeah. and expense and the accuracy is, is, seems as if it's very good at the moment, but the time and expense and then safety issues, of course, for handlers and dogs who could be deployed in airports. We know it's a zoonotic disease, a disease that came from animals, and also this disease has moved into the animal population. So all those issues are extremely important in moving ahead with potentially deploying dogs. What are the dog breeds that are being used in this particular study right now? The one I saw was eight Labradors and one Belgian Malinois. The Belgian Malinois was a dog that had a little bit more experience with other smells beforehand. In London, they're using Spaniels, I believe, and some Labradors. And there's a French study, the study that's a sample T-shirt, and that's using Belgian Malinois. I asked about the dogs because the dog that's most famous for its nose, of course, is a bloodhound. And I said, why don't you use a bloodhound? And the trainability factor with a Labrador that wants so much to please or another working dog like a Spaniel makes them very, very inviting for these trainers. You know, what, which dog do you turn to if you want to have an easy dog to work with? And they, these tend to be typical working dog breeds like Spaniels and uh, Labradors. Yeah. And if you're going to put them in high stress situations like an airport or something like that, right. obviously you want a dog that's going to be easy to work with on, on that front. I'm a dog lover myself, so I just always uh, geek out at these types of stories and just kind of the endless possibilities that we can uh, use these animals for. So in the end of this whole thing, though, they're not necessarily sniffing out COVID-19 itself. Uh, there's these things called volatile organic compounds, and this is how the virus would break down other cells in the body. And this is really what they're smelling, what they're sniffing out for. That's what we believe. Of course, we actually don't know yet exactly what they're sniffing, and that's one of the mysteries 
hanging over this. And that's where the chemistry and physics will come in later in developing a, an electronic nose is narrowing down exactly which molecules people release. But we do know smells are chemicals, are molecules that are released from bodies and they change with sickness. So these volatile organic compounds, we're shedding all the time and we shed different ones when we're sick. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they come out with some more concrete data after they're kind of done training these dogs. And maybe it is something that can scale up. It'll be, uh, like I said, just super interesting to see a follow up on all of this. It'll be fascinating. It'll be fascinating. I, I just know that the people who are doing this work are very keen to do it safely and in a scientifically appropriate way. So that's another reason why it's not you're not going to see dogs tomorrow when you land at an airport in the U.S. Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's hard to imagine just being a child and trying to learn throughout your day wearing a mask. My own district is now recommending that parents procure face shields for our children already for the fall. I mean, so to be outfitted in all this sort of like biohazard gear is really detrimental to the kids. Joining us now is David Zweig, contributor to Wired and author of Invisibles, celebrating the unsung heroes of the workplace. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about schools and coronavirus and children going back to school. It's been a pretty hot topic of discussion of how it's going to get done. The thing I keep hearing the most is it's going to be some type of hybrid learning experience. It could be a mix of remote learning and kids in class or kids in class, but on offset days, still nobody really knows exactly how they're going to do it. But there's a lot of cues that we can look to. A lot of schools in Europe have gone back and they've done a wide range of different things. But one thing we should keep in mind is that we shouldn't try to treat schools like hot zones. For the most part, thankfully, kids are not affected by the virus in the same way. So David, tell us a little bit about this. One of the strangest, or perhaps even the strangest thing about this virus is it's kind of completely passing over children. They're, of course, out of the millions and millions and millions of people who've been exposed to it, there are some cases with children who've had adverse effects and even died. But the numbers are extraordinarily low. In fact, much lower than they are for any number of ills that can afflict children. They're not exactly sure why this is happening, and that's certainly not the focus of my research, the the why. It's just a matter of, but this is what the evidence suggests. And the evidence has only gotten stronger and stronger that kids are, by and large, either very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. And then the second and perhaps more salient point is that children, a lot of evidence is showing that they do not transmit the virus anywhere near the scale that adults do. And that's what really matters as far as opening schools, I think. Yeah, the kids are not the super spreaders that we hear about. And thankfully, that gives a lot of people that are you know, making the decisions to get them back to schools should give them a little more knowledge with how to do it. So the CDC so far has released some guidance on possible things, you know, different words like if possible and if feasible, you can do those things. But they want to keep students separate in class, you know, do the six feet of social distancing. They want to close down cafeterias, jungle gyms, you know, a lot of different things like that. And then masks. So they want to have kids wear masks, which for younger children is going to be a pretty difficult thing. 
the CDC guidelines seem to have almost no acknowledgement of both the infeasibility of many of the recommendations and also the costs of many of the recommendations. So as I noted in my article, Wired, I mean, have they ever been around a bunch of like seven-year-olds as if they're not going to be fidgeting and touching this mask all day long? And that's a, you know a separate issue from the fact that it's hard to imagine just being a child and trying to learn throughout your day wearing a mask. I, my own district is now recommending that parents procure face shields for our children already for the fall. I mean, so to be outfitted in all this sort of like biohazard gear, you know, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, but being outfitted in some of this stuff is really detrimental to the kids. And there doesn't seem to be a recognition of how that's not going to work well for them by the CDC. And yet I've interviewed more than a dozen epidemiologists and infectious diseases experts in multiple countries around the world. And almost universally, they all were acknowledging the fact that like this isn't necessarily helpful or practical. The heads of 20 different French pediatric organizations all signed a letter that stated point blank, it is neither necessary nor desirable nor reasonable for children to be wearing masks in school. So does the CDC know something that the heads of 20 French pediatric organizations don't know? And a very similar statement was released by um, a report that was put together by a panel of experts for the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children. And it's the same thing where they advised that masks were both impractical and that it just wasn't recommended, that it could cause strict distancing, could cause psychological harm. And in France in particular, which is kind of funny, some districts are requiring that the kids wear both masks and face shields. So it's like, a, you know, they, you gotta, they're doubling up on that. What are some of other schools around the world doing to try to help this? Like, you know, obviously not everything will work. And there's some that are, you know, after you can see them going, say, okay, that's not necessarily something we need to go with. But what are some of the other schools doing around the world? It's really a mixed bag, <laughs> um, both from country to country and also within each country. So in trying to sort of put together some sort of like formalized account is is basically impossible at this point, which leads one to understand that there is no consensus. No one really knows what they're doing. And explicitly, that is what multiple epidemiologists who I spoke with, both here in the States and abroad, said to me that the ones who had any degree of humility all said, we don't really know exactly what makes sense. So the bigger question to me then is a philosophical one. In the absence of knowing with 100% certainty about something, what do we do? And for me, what doesn't seem to make sense is that in the absence of, you know, 100% certainty, what, you know, in baseball, they say like the tie goes to the runner, you know, when it's at the same time as uh, the, the, the ball gets thrown in when, when they get to the base. Right. Why does the tie always go toward more with the CDC and their guidelines and now what's coming to be many of the state guidelines? Why does it go toward more when perhaps it makes more sense to do less? Well, they obviously are afraid. The downside, of course, is we don't want cases to go up. When you look at 
the data, and when you look at study after study after study, and again, this is not stuff from three months ago, the evidence just continues to mount that children do not transmit the virus at scale in the way that adults do. Now, maybe things will change in a week or in a month or something, but this is what evidence from around the globe over and over continues to show us. And the last thing I want to ask about, too, is just kind of the effects of all of this, too. Uh, you made mention in your article about the isolation of kids in this, you know, keeping them separate, maybe not uh, having recess the way it used to be, things like that. That also could have an effect on the children. Without knowing for certain, to me, it doesn't make sense to say, well, since we don't know for sure, let's just lock everything down, put them in mass, everybody be apart constantly. You can't touch, you can't do anything. We, here's what we do know. Kids in Sweden, in their schools, in the lower schools, have been open for the entirety of the pandemic. They haven't been wearing masks. They're allowed to touch each other. And there have been no evidence that there are like mass outbreaks. They have 900,000 children in their lower schools, 70,000 teachers. You would think there would be scores of outbreaks. Undeniable. You can't you know, keep it secret um, in their schools if children were really at great risk of doing something like this. And you're right. The costs to children are pretty immense. And the mandate of an epidemiologist, it seems by and large, that, you know, someone like Fauci, who, by the way, seems like a good man and a wise person and reasonable, but nevertheless, his mandate and the incentives for politicians and for superintendents is to go for avoiding what they fear is the worst thing. Their incentives are not aligned toward acknowledging and protecting a much more vague, but equally, if not more important, effect on children. Imagine going through your day for six hours a day, never being allowed to put your arm around a friend. And the jungle gym is closed because they're afraid if you touch it, even though the evidence of the virus surviving on surfaces outdoors is highly questionable. And I've spoken to multiple microbiologists about this. They want a school bus to be half empty, where you have one child on each bench and every other row. So there is this kind of like overarching theme of isolation. There's all sorts of research about touch and how physical touch is critical for how human beings socialize with each other. And you can imagine it's even more important for children. So, I mean, the list goes on and on about what the costs are. They're very real. And I think the largest cost, which I point out in the article, is what's going to become this sort of blended learning model where children are where the schools need to be at a you know half capacity, basically, in order to comply with these distancing guidelines. So they can only have a certain portion of the students there on any given day. And the rest of the time, they're going to be home. And this disproportionately, make no mistake, is going to harm working class families where both parents are working because there is no way they can do their jobs and have the kids home, you know, every other day or every other week. It's going to be interesting to see what further guidelines we get and then how school districts across the country are going to do this. I suspect it's going to be just like you mentioned the article in other countries. It's going to be kind of this mishmash of different guidelines and settings across the country. So we'll have to see how that turns out. David Zweig, contributor to Wired and author of Invisibles, celebrating the unsung heroes of the workplace. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.